The Dark Knight, which is the second film in director Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, is my all-time favorite Batman film. And as a lifelong comic book guy, please believe me when I tell you that I do not say that lightly. The film is an unblinking focus on what I consider to be the quintessential relationship between hero and villain in all of comic book history, Batman and the Joker. A relationship, by the way, for those of you who love history, a relationship that goes all the way back to the spring of 1940, when the Joker first appeared in the very first issue of the Batman comic book. It's an 83-year relationship between this hero and this villain. And as the relational complexities have evolved over the decades between the characters, it has become increasingly clear to comic book readers that part of what makes the relationship between Batman and Joker so relentlessly compelling is that the two characters are bound in a common but bifurcated psychosis. The Joker has been driven mad by his pursuit of a chaos that could never be destructive enough. Batman, by contrast, has been driven mad by his pursuit of a justice that can never be fully achieved. And the two men are bound in this symbiotic relationship of madness, the common ground of which, emotionally speaking, is the severity of their scars. And the severity of their scars is precisely what the film The Dark Knight captures so powerfully and so beautifully. Heath Ledger, in his Oscar-winning performance as the Joker, points to the scars on his face, but he tells these different stories about how he got them. You want to know how I got these scars? My father was a drinker and a fiend. You want to know how I got these scars? They're self-inflicted. I cut my own face. The idea being that the Joker wants people to pay attention to his scars while lying to them about their origin. And then there's Batman who bears a different kind of scar altogether, the deep emotional scars of his parents' murder, and it's those scars that drive his crime fighting, but he hides them. He hides the scars behind a mask and a costume so that he's the only one who knows they exist. And therein lies the truth that the Dark Knight tells us about the human condition, and that truth is this. Human beings tend to treat their scars as something either to be hidden or about which to be lied. Human beings treat their scars either as something to be hidden or as something about which to be lied. And that is what makes Jesus' behavior in the gospel reading that we heard a moment ago from John so powerfully significant. The resurrected Jesus, recently crucified, now set free from the clutches of death, appearing to his disciples. And how is it that Jesus validates or verifies his identity in the presence of these disciples? It's interesting, isn't it? It's countercultural. He reveals his scars. He does not hide them. He does not lie about them. He does not pretend that they're not there. 
Instead, he invites his disciples to place their hands upon his scars, treating them as an expression of incarnational vulnerability. And through his scars, Jesus actually invites the disciples into a moment of relational intimacy with him that those disciples never believed they would experience with Jesus again. And the whole experience as I was growing up inspired all these questions. Maybe this biblical moment inspires questions for you as well, like why in the world would Jesus still have scars following his resurrection? Why wouldn't the scars have been overcome like the rest of death? Why did Jesus see star, the scars as being something important enough to retain? And all that I can offer to you in response to those questions is a maybe. Maybe. Maybe Jesus' scars are a perpetual reminder to all of us that even after the glory of his resurrection, Jesus stubbornly refuses to lose his intimate connection with human suffering. So much so that Jesus bears the tender scars of our affliction on his very person, even as he heals those scars over time. Perhaps Jesus' scars are a perpetual reminder to us that scars matter. They matter. I don't have a sense of what your scars are today that you bring to worship. I have a sense of what my scars are. I don't have a sense of what your scars are. Perhaps you bear the scars of a past mistreatment from which you have spent decades healing. Or the scars of a betrayal that shattered your trust. Or the scars of a grief that continues to occupy your soul. Or the scars of a physical illness that has ravaged your body. Or dare I say it, perhaps you bear the scars caused by a church or a faith community that wounded you or marginalized you or rejected you. But whatever your particular scars are today, whatever scars you bear as you come into this experience of worship, please receive this portion of resurrection good news. Your scars continue to matter to the risen Christ. So much so that the risen Christ bears your scars on his resurrected body, sanctifying them with redeeming grace so that you are able to speak of your scars honestly without being either defined by them or governed by them. Your scars matter to the risen Christ. Another mass shooting in our country this week. This went in a bank in Louisville, Kentucky, and I've been told that there was another mass shooting in Alabama at a birthday party just yesterday. More scars on our nation's soul. Scars that demand tangible action lest they become precursors of countless more scars. A prayer vigil was held earlier this week at the Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Louisville, Kentucky, where one of the victims, Joshua Barrick, had been a faithful member for many years. And the congregation's priest, 
Father Shane Duvall described the situation to a Louisville reporter in this fashion. We are all permanently scarred by this tragedy, he said, which I thought was a, an interesting way of putting it. We are all permanently scarred by this tragedy. And yet, he quickly added, we are people who believe that our anguish is borne by the risen Christ so that we are not carrying it alone. And that makes a difference, he said. That makes a difference. And for our purposes, I would translate what Father Duvall said in this fashion. We all bear permanent scars. Let's be honest with, what, with one another enough to acknowledge that. We all bear permanent scars, and quite frankly, probably most of us bear more than one kind of scar. And yet, and how much of the gospel, how much of the good news is always contained in those words, and yet. We all bear permanent scars, and yet we are people who believe with every fiber of our being that even our most agonizing scars are borne by the living Christ so that we do not bear them alone. Doesn't it make a difference that God relates to our scars that way? By bearing them with us? Whatever your particular scars are today, friends, please know this. This is a place where you do not have to lie about them. And you do not have to hide them. This is a place where your scars matter. They matter to me. They matter to the other people of this congregation. And most importantly, they matter to the one we worship who bears your particular scars on his very person, sanctifying them so that even your scars become signs of life and not signalers of death. Your scars matter here. But in addition to being a biblical moment about the importance of scars, and you know this, it's also a biblical moment about the reality of doubt. Because doubt is precisely what one of the disciples by the name of Thomas brings to Jesus in his encounter with the resurrected Christ. I will not believe that Jesus is risen, this Thomas said to the other disciples. I will not believe that this Jesus is risen until I see him with my own eyes and until I touch his scars. And nobody can blame Thomas for his skepticism about all of this, right? It's always interesting how history treats people. And history has been unkind to this disciple by the name of Thomas, assigning to him this flippant nickname, Doubting Thomas, as though that's the only thing for which he is known. When in fact, he is simply standing for all of us who have ever struggled to believe without seeing. I like Thomas. And it's unfortunate in the life of the church that doubt is so often conceptualized as a spiritual enemy. Have you noticed that? Doubt is so often conceptualized as a spiritual enemy. And as a result, doubt is demonized and shamed. I won't ask for a show of hands, but just think about this. How many of you have ever been made to feel guilty for harboring lingering doubts concerning matters of faith? I have. but receive this additional portion of good news. It's what scripture reveals. And notice this, Jesus does not condemn Thomas for his doubts. 
At no point does Jesus condemn Thomas for his doubts. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't dismiss him. Instead, what does Jesus do? He invites Thomas to touch his scars so that Thomas's doubts become in that moment a spiritual doorway of sorts into a more profound experience of the resurrection and a deeper intimacy with the divine heart. Thomas's scars become a spiritual doorway. And all of that brings me to the theological point that I believe is brightly illuminated by Jesus' encounter with Thomas, and that theological point is this. Authentic doubt is not the spiritual enemy of faith. Indifference might be a spiritual enemy to faith. Cynicism might be a spiritual enemy to faith, but not authentic doubt. Because as Thomas discovered, authentic doubt is a soul's desperate wrestling with the possibility of God for the purpose of clarifying and perhaps even strengthening one's theological convictions. And to tell you the truth, that kind of wrestling is often a part of what a durable faith demands. And that's what makes me all the more grateful that Jesus in this moment does not condemn Thomas's doubts. Rather, Jesus dignifies them. And in dignifying them, Thomas's doubts become a spiritual doorway. This morning I will become confessional with you enough to acknowledge before you that doubt has been a regular companion of mine over the course of 34 years of ministry. Not a doubt that suffocates my faith, not a doubt that stifles my preaching, or that dilutes my sense of urgency about preaching, not that kind of a doubt, but certainly a doubt that prevents me from weaponizing my faith or from becoming idolatrous about my own sense of absolute rightness in a way that would cause me to lose the capacity to imagine what it would be like to be an unbeliever. One day I named my experience of doubt after many years in vocational ministry, but one day I named my experience of doubt in the presence of a spiritual director, not with lament, but merely as an acknowledgement to be as honest in that moment as I could be. And I did so with fear and trepidation because this was a new spiritual director for me and I was uncertain of how she would respond to a pastor who accommodates doubt in his walk of faith. Her response to me that day was something life-giving. That's why I feel a sense of urgency about this whole matter, I suppose. But her response to me that day was something life-giving. Eric, she said, I see your doubt as the byproduct of your soul's desperate pursuit of the divine. And so she said, I'm going to suggest something to you, and you might not believe this right away, and you might think that this sounds kind of strange, but I'm going to suggest something to you. I'm going to suggest that your authentic doubts are some of the most passionate prayers that your heart will ever pray. Oh, and when she said that, I felt like I was in the presence of the risen Christ. I don't mean to be melodramatic about it, but that was what immediately came to mind. Through her ministry, I sensed that the risen Christ was making his presence known to me, and he was not condemning my doubt. He was dignifying it. 
so that even my doubt would become part of the sacred ground upon which Jesus was willing to stand in my life. Whatever your doubts might be today, don't know what they are, but whatever they might be, please know this. This is a place where you do not have to hide your doubts or lie about them. Because your doubts matter here. They matter to me. They really do. They matter to the other people of this church. And most importantly, they matter to the one we worship who responds to our doubts with this gracious availability so that even our doubts become signs of life and not signalers of death. Scars and doubts. Figured prominently in the life of a disciple by the name of Thomas and 2,000 years later, we're navigating our own scars our own doubts and this morning in light of scripture I am simply inviting you to pay attention to both pay attention to your particular scars pay attention to your particular doubts because both your scars and your doubts have the capacity to illuminate the nearness of the risen Christ in whose name we gathered this morning and in whose name I gratefully preach. Amen.